Good to be with you this morning, and uh, I just want to uh, say that it's a, it's, a, it's a joy to be able to be here and to uh, bring God's word to you. Um, if we have not met, my name's Peter, and I'm the pastor here at St. Andrews, and we're just so glad that you're here to worship with us this morning. Um, we've been going through the Gospel of John, and we are going to be in uh, chapter four this morning, we're going to finish up, and it's been the chapter chapter four, and it's been just a really uh, great journey. Um, just picking up this 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 gospel narrative, it's a really sweet section of scripture that has so much to teach us, and so I'm looking forward to diving into our uh, portion of scripture this morning. But I wanted to begin with a premise. Um, I want to begin with a, a phrase that Dallas Willard used frequently. Dallas Willard was a writer um, and theologian who really wrote a lot about spiritual formation and was, I think, one of the most important voices um, of kind of the last 50 years of the church. He just passed away. And he would begin a lot of his talks with just this phrase. He said this, you are a never-ceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. You are a never-ceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. The reason why I want to read that to you is because as we're going through the scriptures, if you've been tracking with us, you can identify that this is exactly what Jesus is trying to teach the people that he is encountering. He's trying to give them an understanding of eternity And he's trying to help them to see themselves in light of God's eternal purposes for their lives. And so we're going to return back to that. I want to read to you one more just uh, tone-setting thing. This is from Mimi Dixon. She also uh, hangs out in the spiritual formation arena. She says this, There are things we can do to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in our personal transformation." There are things that we can do to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in our personal transformation. And so just thinking about these two things, I want to set the tone for our story today, for the gospel uh, reading that is really helping us to see who we are and then inviting us to participate in uh, the, the work that God is doing in and through us. And so we can participate in this. God is uh, not opposed to effort. He is opposed to earning. And so it's our job to bring our full selves. God is fully present in this place. And so we try our best um, to bring our intention to God's intention. With that in mind, would you pray with me and we'll read the story. Lord Jesus, Uh, We just pray that uh, you would do the work that only you can do here um, in our time together. We thank you for the powerful worship, um, for the times of prayer, for community here, uh, the friendship that's shared in this space. We thank you for the body of Christ gathered here in this place. And now we just pray that you would give us Um, insights, that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged, that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged, and ultimately, Lord, would you just sow seeds of your abundant life in our hearts today. 
In your name we pray. Amen. John chapter 4, starting at verse 42, says this. After, the two, after two days, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they also had been there. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, You may go. Your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, The fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and all his household believed. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed having come from Judea to Galilee. So let's talk about the context of the story for a second. You see, we read this, this opening paragraph is really interesting. It's just saying, uh, how Jesus is traveling. You, he was in Samaria, right? And now he's gone back to his hometown. And it says that he's welcomed, but he's welcomed uh, with cheers. People are glad to see Jesus come back into his hometown. And then we get this kind of parenthetical remark that Jesus is still very aware that though he's being welcomed and people are celebrating his presence in his hometown, that he's, he's acknowledging that a prophet isn't always acknowledged in his hometown, right? That there's, there's a tension there between the, the cheering crowd and actually the intentions of the crowd. Then he goes off to where he did his first miracle. We read about turning water into wine in Cana, which is just, you know, like, like, a 15-mile uh, journey in order to get to Cana where he did that first miracle. And there he is meeting the main figure in our story, a royal official. It's interesting, right? So in chapter 3, we saw that Jesus had a one-on-one -on -one encounter with Nicodemus, who is a Jewish leader. And then in chapter 4, we see that Jesus is having a one-on-one -on -one encounter with a Samaritan woman, um, somebody who's outside of his culture and his gender. And then now we see Jesus is back in his hometown, but he's not having a one-on-one -on -one encounter with somebody from his hometown. He's having a one-on-one -on -one encounter with a royal official. This is somebody who would have been connected to important people. Um, a lot of scholars think that potentially connected to Herod Antiochus, who was connected to uh, 
John the Baptist's uh, killing. And so this, this connection, this royal connection is really interesting. See, if we hold the tension in the story, if we just hold before we know how the story ends, there's a big question that comes up like, what's Jesus going to do here? With this person that's connected to power, we see what he's done in these other two settings, but what about uh, this royal official? Like, this is complicated. Uh, this is a, a, a person who's connected to an occupying uh, force that is oppressing the Jewish people, and yet he's coming with a request uh, out of need, out of desperation for his son. And so we see Jesus has to name something in the story, doesn't he? When the questions surface, well, what's Jesus going to do here? The first thing that Jesus does is he, he calls something out. Things cannot be healed until they're named. Did you catch what he calls out? He calls out uh, in verse 48, he says, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. And so there's a crowd that's gathered around uh, this royal official and his request. And he's calling out these, this desire within this crowd. He can feel the desire within the crowd for signs and wonders. You see, Jesus can become attractive for all the wrong reasons. The cheers of the crowd are there because of spectacle. They've heard of what Jesus has done in other places, and he needs to call out the fact that people are there for the power, to see the power, to see the fireworks, to see what might happen with Jesus. And so he calls it out. And, and in some ways, it's just a reminder to us, right, that, that we want Jesus to do what we want Jesus to do that the, the old saying is true, that God made us in his image and we are trying to return the favor. That we're trying to say, Jesus, what you should do is what we, we would like you to do. We would like to see signs and wonders and there's a lot of working out of Jesus calling out these intentions so he can get to something deeper, more profound in the story. So a good framework question for us this morning that we might just think about, because um, there's a reason why this is in the scripture. It speaks to something lasting and important for us to think about. What is the spectacle of Jesus, and what is the sus substance of Jesus? And you know, this, this past week, um, as I was doing my sermon prep, there was another accident right over here. Um, on PCH, right? And, and those of us who've been around here a long time go, oh, that is not a surprise, correct? Like, people get in accidents right there all the time. It happened during church a few weeks back, right? It was, was kind, of a, kind of a weird disorienting moment, right, in, in the church service. And, and after a while, it's like you just begin to realize, like, man, if you could just tell people to be a little extra careful, like right over there, that would probably be a good thing, right? 
Uh, how do we let people know that this is a place where there's a lot of car accidents, like right in this place? That would be good. And I think that's what's happening in the story, right? Is, is we know that Jesus did a lot of signs, wonders, John tells us, that actually aren't, aren't spoken of in the scripture, but Jesus has specifically selected this story because it's speaking to something where there's a car crash that happens. Like there's something here that if we could just pay attention to it, that it would be good to pay attention to. Like, like can we really do a good job of discerning between the spectacle of Jesus and the substance of Jesus? And so I just want to kind of work through, like, how do we think about that? You know, when, when we think about the miraculous, what, what comes up in us? Um, is it a desire out of compassion for healing? Or is it, like, evidence to confirm? Right? Is it proving so that we can be, go around and prove things? Or is it so that we can create big crowds of hype? And, and, and cheer and, and go team Jesus? Or is it about seeing people become fully alive and transformed by Jesus? And so this is what we're unpacking in the story. We want to see how we can move from just, just the spectacle to the substance. And the first way that I think we can see in our story that we can make this movement is to see how Jesus is particular. Like I talked about this just a little bit, but as he, he's doing these miracles, we, we see even earlier in the story, if you remember back uh, in uh, the beginning of the story about the Samaritan woman, that there's this commentary about how Jesus' disciples are locked into a baptism, baptism ministry that is going really well. And, and they're baptizing people and they're succeeding and the rumors have gotten to John's people and John has to have a dialogue with his people about that. But the, the, the news that things are going well for Jesus' ministry is out there. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is like, okay, we're moving. Like, we're gonna leave this ministry of baptism and we're, we're gonna get on the move. And he goes and he goes to Samaria. And it's like, if you're the, you're the disciples, you didn't go with him, he's, he's kind of off on his own. And I'm wondering what the side conversations were like. Like, really, Jesus? Like, we were just getting traction here um, and now you're gonna go to this place where we're not supposed to go? Um, and what are you up to here? Why, what's the point of you leaving this great ministry to go to this place where uh, we shouldn't be. Jesus doesn't go with them. And so we see them coming in after they've had probably some side conversations about Jesus, and they're walking to Jesus. Jesus, you want some lunch? And, and, and Jesus is like, that's not what I'm here for. I'm trying to bring about eternal things. Right, and so, so the, this conversation around the crowd and ministry and hype is also right in the backdrop even before this story. And so what was in the disciples, what is in the disciples and what they're working out is something that's in the crowd and they're also working this out. 
just going from the, specu- the, the power that they can get and be a part of to what Jesus wants to do on these one-on-one encounters with people to bring forward actual transformation in their lives. Let me read to you a quote that I think gets at the faith behind transformation. Hebrews 11.1 1 says this, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. In this story, what we see is that Jesus is going to perform a miracle, but what's interesting is that people who see miracles don't always respond the way that you think that they would respond. You see, time wears on. Perhaps you've been in a place where you've seen something powerful that God has done, and you know that time continues on. And so if it was just about the signs and wonders, they would need another sign and another wonder and another sign and another wonder and another sign and another wonder. It's another intractable thing, right? That time just keeps moving on. And transformation, Jesus' transformation is trying to get us out of those intractable things. Hear this quote, says this, when the narrow road God leads us on narrows, We are tempted to ask Jesus, wouldn't it make sense for you to prevent all that suffering, to skip the rough times and to provide a blessed life of comfort and prosperity and a healed life of self-esteem and confidence, but Jesus won't budge. His ways are too far above us for our minds to appreciate. He is offering something far better than what we want. God does his most powerful and deepest work through men and women who find the narrow road and walk that road no matter how narrow it gets, anchored in eternal hope, persevering in sightless faith, and irrevocably committed to sacrificial love. We resist talk of a narrow road that threatens to rob us of our freedom to live as we think best, that challenges our assumed rights to have life go as we desire if we live a good and moral life. Before it's over, life will get difficult for us. So remember that the way is costly and the road is narrow. But remember this too. God will never crush his life, his Zoe life present in all of us, but he intends to crush into dust what we wrongly believe is life in order to release his life into us. And so you see the work of Jesus above our ways, seeking to drill down on all our assumptions and ask the deeper question, do you want the real thing? Do you want the real substance of faith? 
Do you want the thing that could truly transform you? Are you tired yet of the things that you've been trying again and again and again that leave you feeling empty over time? There's something more here to offer, and here's the best news. Jesus works with our mixed motives again, doesn't he, in the story? This royal official doesn't have it all figured out by a long shot. And yet, it's simply Jesus' desire for abundant life and his compassion for this authentic request that Jesus says yes and in that moment is able to heal this royal official's son. And there's a conversation going just beneath the surface here about time. See, we live in chronological time and it moves forward, like I said. But Jesus, if you caught it in the story, right, that right when he said, this boy will be well, right on time, this boy is healed. And so the temporal nature of time that keeps moving forward, the entropy of time that, that brings change no matter what, uh, how we feel, time moving on and moving on. The yesterday, uh, my uh, five-year-old, a four-year-old daughter, Glory, was talking to my wife and she said to her, how old are you? And Katie said, I'm 37. And then she said, so how many days until you die? <laughs> and it was like, what? Just so, so honest. It's true. How many days? And yet, Jesus came to teach us that there isn't just chronological time. That there's also what's called chronos time, God's time, what we would call the fullness of time. A time that is not bound by temporary things, but it actually gives us a glimpse that we are eternal beings. And we can live in light of that in the here and now. It makes me think of one, one last image here as we come to the end. There is a, a, this super bloom that's going on everywhere, right? And this is a picture from space of the super bloom that this too teaches us all around us, everywhere right now, something about God's desire. That as we live through the seasons of our life, as we go through life, that, that he wants to make the world into a super bloom. And so I just wanna leave you that image as we think about eternity, 
so that when you walk around, I got to go on a hike this week with two friends, as you see this blooming everywhere you go, that it will be a reminder to you of what we're learning together here. That, that the fullness of time is a bloom in God's kingdom. So whatever you are dealing with, whatever the things are that need to be named and come to light and be crushed, may you know it's for the sake of this super bloom that God is trying to do in you. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, uh, would you help us uh, to just find a name for the things that hold us back, that prevent us from seeing ourselves and the people around us in the way that you would like us to see them. And may we receive this great promise that you are high and seated on the throne, enthroned and powerful and king of kings and lord of lords, And with all that power, you have shown us that you care for the things that matter most. And you've looked at us and seen it all and declared it beautiful and holy and wonderful because of your death and resurrection. And so I pray you'd help us to receive this goodness and live in light of it. In your precious and holy name we pray, amen.